Welcome back to Season 2 of the Verde Podcast. This season, we are going to go deeper and explore the movement that is driving sustainability in Chicagoland, uh, as well as Illinois. And today, we have Seth Green, who is the founding director of the Raymond, I'm going to butcher this name just so you know, Raymond Baumhart SJ Center for Social Enterprise and Responsibility at Loyola University. Done better than I could do. (laughs) Perfect pronunciation. Okay, Raymond would be quite pleased. Good, good. That was a mouthful, so I've been practicing all morning. Um, So, Welcome. Thank you. And uh, so, so tell us a little bit about your background personally and your arrival into Loyola University and a, and a bit about the program. Wonderful. So uh, I'm Seth Green. I started in this work in my own mind uh, when I was in college. Uh, I was an econ uh, and political science major. And there was a movement on our campus that really combined both of those, which was to support living wages for workers And I was very fortunate to be um, among the people that helped to shape a campaign on our campus to build uh, just wages. And we did a lot of analysis on how our university actually had a very unique role to play in that market. We employed more than 20% of people in the janitorial and food service industry within our county and uh, really were depressing wages countywide, and that was inconsistent with our values. And so worked um, through both the organizing side and the analytic side, and um, really it was other leaders uh, who I was following in that campaign, uh, but we ultimately had uh, a very positive outcome for workers and felt like we were um, really uh, doing what we believed in, which was using business principles and economic principles uh, for social good and figuring out how to integrate business strategy and social purpose. Uh, So, you know, from there, I'll just fast forward, uh, went through um, a couple years abroad uh, that led me to believe that we as a country uh, could do more to really um, explore issues of climate change and uh, global poverty and better understand um, our relationship with uh, parts of the world like the Muslim world. And so started an organization with a group of peers uh, that took off. Um, and I kind of continued to run that um, alongside going through law school. And after five years, uh, really noticed that I was really uh, social in uh, my skill set. Mm. And I had become, uh, over that time period, really fascinated with social entrepreneurship and I had no entrepreneurship of like a real sort or enterprise of a real sort to speak of. What and was so, the, the, the thing that you created before grad school? Was that what what entity status was that? Uh, yes, yeah, so it was a nonprofit. Okay. It's called Americans for Informed Democracy. I continue to sit on the board of it. It's a very small uh, but we think mighty entity today. And um, and where uh, I then went was to say, okay, if I want to be in social enterprise and I have social. Uh, where do I need to grow? And just in a happy coincidence, uh, there's a consulting firm called McKinsey & Company that does private sector consulting. They were hiring people out of our law school that essentially were like me thinking, you know, I'm really interested in this whole uh, business strategy. Uh, in many people's cases, they were interested in business for business, so to speak. Sure. Um, mine was a unique interest, which was that I really wanted to add business strategy to my toolkit so that I could do more social business. Hmm. And so uh, met with people there, shared, honestly, like I'm interested in coming for a 
few years, you know, this is my long-term goal. It was 2007, so they were really desperate at the time. Uh, and so, thankfully, um, they let me on their team. Uh, I got to do half of my time, ultimately, in their social sector office, which was really transformational. So we'd take uh, leverage ideas that are coming out of the main practice of the firm, but then we'd apply them at the Gates Foundation or uh, United Way. Uh, and we'd really be able to look at how do you take these strategies and put them to use for social good. Um, and then the rest of my career has been uh, part strategy, uh, part uh, trailing spouse, so to speak. So um, my wife got her postdoc in Philadelphia, and I was fortunate to get um, an opportunity there to lead a social venture fund. Uh, and then after that, we moved out here to Chicago uh, and I got to lead what is to date still um, the most inspiring organization that I've ever been a part of called Youth and Opportunity United. It's an urban education organization. Uh, we are partners with families in making sure that kids who have incredible promise realize that promise. And uh, it was a total joy and honor to lead that for six and a half years uh, through what was a big growth spurt. We um, quadrupled in the number of kids that we were serving, and we ran a really um, kind of exciting campaign to build a state-of-the-art new youth center. Hmm. So the end of all that experience, kind of looking at social and business um, across my career, I got a, an opportunity to lead this center here at Loyola. And so we are called the Bombhart Center for Social Enterprise and Responsibility, a mouthful to be sure. Uh, and that is what we do. We look at how to integrate social purpose and business strategy to advance social innovation. Uh, we look across three spheres, social impact, nonprofits that are leveraging business strategy, the feeding Americas of the world who are saying, how do I leverage supply chain insight to feed the hungry? Social enterprise, so companies uh, that you are a part of where you're saying, how do I put a business out there that's actually in its core operation going to make the world a more sustainable, a more um, you know, socially inclusive, you name it, a better place? Uh, and then social responsibility, which are our corporations who may not be wholly good, um, but who may have parts of their strategy that are trying to co-create value. And we focus on those parts, and we hope to accelerate and grow those parts of the company so that we have more good coming from all sectors. And so I'll tell you more about what we do, but that's, in a nutshell, what we're about as a thematic vision. And then we have educational engagement and research focuses that allow us to put those ideas into action. So the, the nonprofit that you worked at in Chicago before you came here, uh, I've always been really interested in the stats of, of how poor the graduation rate is from Chicago from high school. Can you talk, I mean, from your experience, I'm sure you work deeply in, in that. And have you seen trends in a positive direction for that? Yeah, so there's a lot of positive happening in urban education uh, in broader Chicagoland. Uh, obviously, all of it is under you know, the weight of history and uh, the totality of the system is still, you know, miserable in, in producing outcomes yeah. for, you know, a young black male born to a single parent that are, I mean, not even in the same, um, you know, century in a certain sense as, you know, for a, a daughter like my own daughter uh, who will grow up, uh, you know, in a, in a white privileged uh, educated household, right? And so obviously that's an unacceptable outcome when both kids have the same potential and, you know, the only thing that differentiates them is opportunity. And yet it's, it's you know, entirely predictable uh, what these outcomes are going to be. So having said that and having made clear that, you know, we're in a world that is um, not 
uh, in any way acceptable. Um, there have been positive trends, right? Not fast enough and not far enough, but some of the positive trends that are out there, one is that we're doing a much better job on graduation rates. And uh, there is a much greater focus on how do we make that transition into ninth grade successful and then keep kids in the schools. And so the consortium on Chicago School Research in partnership with Chicago Public Schools has really transformed what that transition looks like to go from one of the worst performing to one of the best performing yeah. uh, in the country. What we focused on at the organization I led is how do you do the out-of-school time? So, you know, there's what happens in the school, which is the formal education, and there's a lot of strategies being deployed there that are um, still going to be focused on the academic side. And what we know is that that's only part of the equation. Non-cognitive or social and emotional are not only really important to the academic itself, but in their own right, have a huge bearing, even if you had similar academics uh, for a student, a huge bearing on whether or not that student is resilient in their job search and whether or not they're ultimately successful in building a productive life. And so we really focus on how do you harness the power of out-of-school time and how do you provide to all kids the kinds of informal opportunities and exposure that lead them to dream big and to actually follow those dreams. And so we would work with great schools and great families, but then we would try to piece together this three to six period uh, in the after school and the whole day in the summer and really make them into hours where kids were exploring, you know, all the different cultural assets of Chicago. They were building entrepreneurial visions and uh, having those business plans, you know, seriously put in front of uh, people that were in the investment field. And so you can imagine all the different variations of that. But the goal was, you know, these are the future leaders. How do we give them the same opportunities that all future leaders have access to? Yeah. yeah my, my kids are, I have a six-year-old and a almost four-year-old. And uh, they're both in a Chicago public school. It's not our neighborhood school, but it's within a, you know, it's almost a half mile from our house. So it's not our designated neighborhood school, but it's it's right outside our district. And uh, it's fantastic. And I, I, it's interesting how much, like, uh, one principal can impact one school in such a positive direction. And then, you know, a neighboring school in the same block, essentially, could be totally different. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we have a similar good luck school. Uh, we live in Evanston. We have a four and seven year old, so we're very close yeah. uh, to where yeah. you are. And our seven year old is in a school that is phenomenal, and the principal is a huge part of attracting the people who yeah. then you know make the school work so well. And and it's a school that's doing it. It's um, Washington Elementary School in Evanston uh, with a very high level of diversity. And has really, I think, um, benefited uh, from that for all students. So I feel like my daughter has a dramatically better education yeah. than she could in the quote-unquote Nutrier district because she's getting, you know, those types of opportunities to really become socially and emotionally whole as right. well as academically and become passionate about what I believe really matters, which is, you know, these relationships and ultimately our interconnections. Well, I, I, we're kind of diving off subject yeah. here, but I, I've, I personally think a lot about this topic, and I think, especially living in Chicago, you can't but feel the inequity that we we've created, and we're all a part of, and it's it sometimes feels like helpless, right? Like, like what can you do? And I think historically, people just move far away to someplace safe that they can take care of their kids, and I, I don't know the answers, but I know that's the wrong way to solve the problem. So, because it well, seems like throwing money at issues don't really solve it. You know, just that's 
everything I've always heard in the past, and so there have to be these ways of that we're creatively solving it together. So it could be that I'm a past nonprofit uh, CEO, but I do believe in throwing money. Uh, <laughs> so I mean that somewhat sincerely in that, yeah. you know, if our schools for um, all kids were resourced as well as the school in Winnet, because we would truly have different outcomes. So, I mean, I, I always look with the lens of money is not the solution, but um, equal resources is a key uh, yeah. part of the solution. Uh, equally, though, to your point, um, the thing I think people don't fully appreciate, and even I don't fully appreciate, I'm sure, uh, and my wife is a historian, so she helps me, is that you know we live constantly with the weight of history. Uh, if we uh, don't make a massive change that is as great as the wrong, uh, then we replicate. So, you know, we are dealing in this country with gross injustice. I mean, at the most core and inhumane levels. And, you know, if you really read about chattel slavery and these other practices that are part of our country's origin story, I think it is impossible not to walk away with a sense of how um, grotesque aspects, aspects, not all, but aspects of our country uh, have been. And so, you know, there's nothing at that scale that we've done to correct these things. Sure. Uh, and so, you know, that's, I think, the context that we have to think about. Yeah. And so whenever you're with that weight of history, right, history replicates. And so if, if we don't have initiatives as big uh, to try to change history, then, you know, we will live with, even with the progress we're making, with another generation of, you know, kids um, growing up differently based on the color of their skin and the, the origin womb that, they, that they're born into. Well, um, that was a deep start to the podcast. But <laughs> well, it I, translates because environment is, you know, my own passion point. I love the environment and I love being out of nature, but it really is a humanistic one. It's that, you know, as we think about what's going to happen with sustainability, the people most um, impacted on these fronts are ultimately uh, the poor. I mean, if you look at yeah. uh, who can adjust and who can't, yeah. um, what we're going to see is that the impact of climate change is created by the wealthy and it is most severe on the poor. And so it relates very closely as we dive into that oh, discussion. Oh, completely. I mean, if, if tomorrow the, the waters of Lake Michigan rose, the wealthy would be able to transplant themselves somewhere and the poor would suffer. And if it's hot outside, we can turn our air conditioning on and those of us that can afford it and those that don't, I mean, it's hard to remember that half the world doesn't have access to that. Right. Um, to deal with that kind of severe impact on life. Uh, so it's interesting. I, I, I think that the – and I think you're right. I think the story of the environment and education are, are similar, where that we are, as a society and as all of us, a part of it, are choosing a path, right? We're choosing to ignore it. We're choosing to address it. We're choosing to sometimes even accept it's real science, which is something we collectively <laughs> have to address, right? And I think – seems like the most basic. I mean we clearly have uh, politics right now that are not at that basic level. Totally. But, yeah, accepting that science is real is the first step. Well, I – so I, I – I, before this – before I started my company, I was a firefighter. And I remember uh, getting in long discussions about the – there was a general test that firefighters would take. And I think, you know, a thousand people would take and they'd hire the top two, right? I was fortunate to get hired because I had a great background, right? And I remember arguing with people of like, this isn't a fair test. This isn't a level playing field. And that's because, and, and I wasn't, I mean, I, you know, I think some people argue with me about this, but I wasn't a particularly great firefighter. I was okay. Mm -hmm. But being able to top test out of the top one or 2% didn't really help me be better at my job of opening walls and doing things like that. Right. So, um, but I think that that is like 
but I, anyways, I remember arguing with someone about like how he was like, well, I just think, you know, white people just test better. They're just more intelligent. I was like, that, I don't know anything, but I know that's not right. Like that's not the world we live in. But I think that some people will look at a scenario and, and create their own story behind it. And so until we're like, you said something that really resonates with me is that we're, we're all born with the same opportunity. And yeah, if we're not giving the same opportunity to every kid or if we're not acknowledging and, and trying to take basic steps in solving the, the, the problems, I, I guess this is what happens when two social, socially <laughs> entrepreneurial focused folks get in a conversation, we can go over the place. But anyway, so that's my, that's yeah. my two cents there. So. Yeah, no, so I mean, I, uh, I think first of all, you're pointing out that, um, you know, we remain with a lot of trappings in this country. And I think, you know, whenever people are in privilege, um, they justify it. And so, you know, the risk is uh, that we um, see the world as it has become rather than as it should be. Uh, and so, you know, for me to have someone say that is offensive on every level. Um, but it also just shows how um, willing we are to uh, justify our own existence or to validate it through false reasoning, right? And I think to make the transfer then over to climate change, same idea, right? I mean, so you have people that just deny science because it's unhelpful. Yeah. I mean, to them and their political agenda. And so, uh, you know, I think Barack Obama has said it well recently when he said that, you know, what well, we've had always some level of debate over these things and some level of lessening facts to have, you know, almost no room for them in public debate is, I mean, the most uh, uh, troubling development in the last couple of years. And so I only wish it were reserved to climate change that yeah. we were uh, questioning because that has some long legacy of uh, what I think to be, you know, insane uh, uh, approaches by uh, by primarily uh, the Republican Party in, in denying the science. Yeah. Uh, now it's obviously been a strategy that uh, has been viewed successful enough to deny facts that it's become even part of things that, you know, you and I as just like human beings that know nothing could, yeah. you know, tell the difference on. Yeah. Uh, well, so to come to sustainability, though, I mean, I think that, you know, everything that we're talking about is part of the same sense of moral norms. And I think the question here, again, becomes, you know, we have had a set of behaviors that have created a kind of ongoing stream of activity that we know is putting the planet in peril at an accelerated rate beyond which uh, we can easily recover. And so I think it's that same idea that, you know, how did we get here, right? And in this case, I think that a lot of this was maybe less obvious to us as humans than uh, the issues like slavery. I mean, I, I think if you look back at debates, you know, there were people that raised these questions in the 1750s and beyond. We didn't change, but we raised them in a way that said that, you know, humans had the capacity to understand them. Clearly, this is something that has really started as a trend as the economies grew through capitalism, I mean, at least dating back a couple hundred years, only in the last, um, you know, decades, uh, you know, you can look at it in Convenient Truth, and so people were talking about it in the 60s, 70s, but it's only in the last, let's say, hundred years that we've really began to be able to fully understand sure. uh, the impacts that we're making. Nonetheless, though, the same idea holds true, which is you have to have a counter uh, that is as big as the weight that has been hmm. kind of pressed into motion. And so what does that mean? I mean, ultimately, my own view is that we need to reimagine what business and how it interacts with society looks like. And so um, we are, I think, going to reach that point in the decades ahead where 
you know, this one one upshot of this, I think, is that it will come to a place that 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 does impact people in a way that drives behavior. Um, we're already seeing, you know, uh, climate pressures in ways that are very impactful. Yeah. The, the challenge is that it won't impact people equally, that we won't have the opportunity to pivot um, at a much less costly stage. Yeah. And so that's the case for getting on it now versus, you know, having the reactive strategy later. Uh, but ultimately, I think it's a reimagination of business. I mean, I think it has to be a business that is less impactful on our environment and it has to be a reimagination of how rich and poor countries each share in the in in both the creation and the and the you know prevention of these yeah. these issues. Yeah, we've had the the fortunate to become wealthy in the last 150 years and our carbon impact is not done but the growth of that is pretty much stagnant. And then we want to tell other poor countries that you cannot develop uh, because it's going to create climate change, even though we've already gotten to that point. It's complex, for sure. I think, you know, I, I think a lot about this. I, so I I'm studied a lot carbon tax versus cap and trade. I'm not sure if you've got a lot of background yeah. on that. But every, and I, sometimes I'm guilty of this. When I see an opportunity, I have a hard time on seeing it. So everything tells me that the whatever has happened the last, you know, five years with uh Specifically, with the, the the gross deficit in our federal income tax, you know, with all the the recent tax cuts, is truly setting the stage for a carbon tax being possibly the only solution. Like, the government needs money. We're going to have to at some point raise it, and how can we do it? Right? Like, what other ways that there? So, I feel like it could be very interesting in the next three years if the Democrats get their act together and get control of the House of Congress can articulate this way to raise money and also, in doing so, slightly decrease the you know, way that we all use carbon right. or produ- produce carbon, I guess. So I'm, opt- I'm, I'm wildly optimistic about it. I've never once met someone else who mm-hmm. also feels that way, but I'm also kind of an idealist. <laughs> so I'm curious your thoughts on, on that as a potential... Well, I'll leave the politics aside. So I can't tell what our country uh, thinks politically. I was obviously uh, stunned at our, you know, 2016 outcome and uh, and acknowledged that it made me think, you know, I'm living in a bubble. I need to be more uh, aware. Uh, it did not change my views on the on the core topics. I, I think that we will ultimately understand in history how wrong a number of aspects of what is currently you know, allowed to be our, our federal leadership. Uh, I think we will learn, you know, as we have throughout history, there are moments that we are at our weakest moment. This will be, I think, remembered as one of them. Um, so having said all that, uh, putting the politics aside, the tax makes sense to me on a intellectual level because what you're trying to do is you're trying to integrate something into your model that accounts for the externalities because what you're ultimately in this position uh, because of is that we've had a world where you can make a lot of money and you get the money, but society gets the negative externality of carbon or whatever that, you know, environmental harm that you may be creating is. And we want people to be entrepreneurs. You're an entrepreneur. I believe in entrepreneurship. The issue is we want them to be creating real value. And the only way to check if they're creating real value is find some way to put a price or a cost on the places where they are having harm so that in the net you're getting value. And then the reason they're profiting is because they are creating so much value on net, taking all issues into account that they deserve a piece of it. 
And I'm a big believer in all of that. The challenge right now is that you don't have a cost to the carbon or the other harms that are out sure. there. And so for me, the most natural way to integrate this, because, you know, reimagination of business, those are all like out there. Those are hard to actually imagine, yeah. <laughs> having just said that. So yeah. what's one of the easiest things? You leave business. You give it um, the same basic motivation. You're you know here to profit. But let's now actually account for the environment. And the best way to do that in a market system is to give it a price and then force people to make that hard choice. And you know ultimately, some level of environmental harm we take as a, a necessity in sure. life, right? So it's not that we can live in a carbon-free or you know at least in the foreseeable future – the question is, how do we come to those outcomes where it actually makes sense to pollute or to have? And where can we go and say, these are just purposes that don't have adequate value. And so once we put a price on it, we'll know, is this producing adequate value to justify or is it not? And then, you know, behavior will follow. And I mean, we just saw this with the recent tax cuts. Behavior does follow. I mean, oh, yeah. I... I um, I, I hate to say anything positive about it because I, at my core, I believe it, you know, defies all values. So, you know, values come first. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, let's put the values aside. I do think, statistically speaking, if you look at the economic data, um, that it is true that these tax cuts have influenced behavior. And so, you know, I think it's a case, uh, in my mind, for tax increases uh, where we want to change behavior. Sure. Yeah, you don't want people smoking cigarettes, so you put a tax on it, right? Exactly. And that slows it down. It doesn't dictate what people do it just right. makes that choice have a little bit of an extra an extra cost to it so yeah i'm a i'm a big fan of that as a solution but it's um that would take it politically it's impossible to pass a tax in our country so it's an uphill battle but i do think there'll be increasing pressure that we'll have to do something to address the deficit like we'll have to right um so i'm optimistic there so, <laughs> so we'll check uh, back in we'll have a follow-up in, in this political years. environment then you have uh you know, truly a positive attitude. Yeah, yeah for sure. So, um, so tell me, you know, I, I find myself when you're talking, thinking about this question of that I've often thought about. You've got two solar companies, right, in Illinois. They're both producing solar panels, which, you know, based on what we've said so far, is arguably good. Like yeah. it's, it's a social good, right? One of those is created by some evil guy who just hires people terribly, treats them bad, uh, and just uses a high-polluting version to make these panels. He's got some plants somewhere. He's shoveling coal into it to produce the panels. And the other one is somebody, you know, a young woman who's uh, does everything by the good, right, that we would consider good, right? And hires provides, people with apprenticeships, helps them get family-sustaining wages. Great health insurance benefits, yeah. great, you know, like really shares all the profit with you, you know, like a great, great. Oh, uh, yeah. So are both of those... Because their their goal is to reduce energy, and both of them, if they were to sell equally, would do that goal the same way. How do you feel about those two companies? I guess what are you what are your thoughts? Well, so one big change that's happening in the marketplace is that the new generation of talent is taking a much more holistic look at the companies they're joining. So my own view is that you know the second company you described, the one that's taking all stakeholders into account is the better company. It could be a B Corp or an L3C. Uh, and it would be really trying to solve a major problem, which is climate change, while having positive impacts on all these other areas. And so when you think about what your net positive is, it may have the maximal net positive. 
Uh, and what is changing is that we're seeing more and more millennials say they want to work for those types of companies. And uh, what we know today is that talent is harder to come by. Um, more educated people are paid more, so we have bifurcation of wages. The one upshot, and arguably the only upshot of that, is that we are now empowering a group of people who are really positioned to make choices beyond compensation. And so they are looking for the companies that are going to be the highest purpose companies. One thing that has been described to me is that, you know, the old days, you'd say God, family, country. Those are the, you know, things that motivate people. So declining religion among the millennial generation, uh, you have uh, family starting later uh, than ever before, and the lowest level of trust in government in recorded history uh, by this generation in particular, although across the board as well. And so, you know, where are those millennials finding purpose? They're finding it in their job. And it becomes very transparent to people who join a solar company for mission, at least in part, uh, that it's not being run with those values. So I, I think we're coming to a place where that first example won't even be a sustainable enterprise because they won't be able to fill it with talent that can actually execute on the, on the vision, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, for sure. So, they, so if I understand you correctly, they would maybe be able to, in the short run, squeeze out better profits because they're a little bit more profitable, but the company overall would suffer with less talent and uh, eventually just not be able to be competitive. Yeah. I mean, in general, if, unless you're in like, you know, ultra small retail, the Amazons of the world, right? Um, you're seeing less of the real competition happening on price and more of the real competition happening on service. Huh. So I think, you know, we're in a world today that benefits from that because companies that are higher purpose and higher values have the opportunity to deliver dramatically better service and make up for what might be a difference in price because of, you know, but, you know, at the end of the day, you end up paying turnover and all these other fees. I'm not sure long term it's a strategy that even beats on price, but you could argue even if it does, you're going to be in a dramatically better position being the upstander. Do you think, does that translate into large corporations as well? So it's a wholly, um, you know, exploratory question right now. And uh, what we do know is that, one, uh, socially responsible companies, like, you know, there are indices of this, like sustainability, they perform better for shareholders. Uh, and the question is that cause or effect, right? So companies that are performing really well have the luxury of doing social responsibility yeah. or the other way around. But here's an interesting reason why we think it's actually effect, uh, meaning, um, uh, sorry, cause. Uh, here's the reason why we think it's cause. So... Uh, interesting story in the Wall Street Journal where they looked at if you get hired into a CEO role and you have daughters, uh, then what's the outcome on social responsibility? Or if you have sons or, or no children. Turns out that CEOs who have daughters uh, have higher social responsibility. So regardless of where the company starts, they raise the social responsibility. They also, according to that same article, although it wasn't as statistically significant, had higher shareholder performance. Hmm. Now, here's the thesis that a couple of the researchers involved in it thought about. CEOs, just like any human being, want to be loved at home. It turns out, and this may be nurture or nature, so to be super clear, this is not a statement of what is inherent, uh, but women on average uh, respect their parent more if their parent is doing good and doing well, whereas sons are more on average likely to judge by traditional metrics. So it turns out that these 
parents who become CEOs who may be more socially responsible because they have certain influences on them perform better yeah. for shareholders. So that's not, you know, by any means an exact science, right. uh, but there's a lot of gathering evidence to suggest that companies that, you know, do good and do well are able to benefit from that. Now, there's a whole other set of questions around with any corporation, are they doing well and doing good? Are they alternatively putting their name out there and not having the impacts that, you know, they they say? Uh, and the one guard against that, because I think that's a real phenomenon and a concern, is that the number one place where people get value out of social responsibility is their own employees. And so it's not impossible, but it's tougher to pool your own employees. Yeah, right. So sure. it's one thing to market you know, and be out there in a commercial. It's another thing if people work at you 40 hours a week, and at a certain level, they're going to see whether or not every executive on your team, every you know, line manager is really solving for sustainability, yeah. or are they just saying the words because it's in their compliance handbook. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm also super thankful that I have two daughters at this point, so that's great. I am too. Yeah. It's good research, <laughs> and uh, I'll say there's many benefits to having daughters. I'm told when you grow up, they're also more likely to take care of you well, and things like that, but that amazing. is gendered, and so I don't want to yeah. put that, uh, that may entirely be nurture rather right. uh, than nature. So, uh, Well, I, I, I remember being struck by an article 10 years ago, or it might have been longer, but that larger corporations that had a, a very uh, viable corporate sustainability initiative outperformed other companies and the logic was I, I just always took it as it didn't mean that they improved their bottom line and were more profitable but it meant that if they're thoughtful enough and intelligent enough and forward thinking enough to put time and energy into that they're also making the right decisions throughout the rest of the business right um so i hope that that's true as well because obviously as a you know i consider ourselves a social enterprise like i, I hope that we succeed out you know first the uh, quote unquote bad guys of the world. So yeah, well, I mean, people like values based leaders, and it has a role model effect. And so you also guard against, I would say, the types of issues that happen in the lowest performing. So you know, you think of the Wells Fargo and the scandal yeah. that happened, and how you get into these places where you know from the top down you actually encourage and incentivize social irresponsibility. Yeah. yeah. Well. Uh, Man, I have like 500 things I want to talk to you about, but we're, we're kind of going long on time here. Yeah. So one last thing, just want to hear your thoughts on from your larger perspective of the, the business climate and Illinois in general. What are your thoughts about specifically solar as a viable source in Illinois in the next few years? So, you know, I know less about this than you do, uh, just to say that out loud. Um, my view is that we're going to see a significant rise in renewable energy as long as we have the right incentives in place. And I know at the state level, we have had progress there, which is really exciting. Yeah. I think we're going to need to see even more national attention so that we can get you know, a multi-level of incentive structure for yeah. that kind of behavior. Uh, I am not one who's really able to say solar versus the other potential strategies. Yeah. Um, but on the on the you know, whole, um, given what we've just talked about with climate change and the need for adaptation, I think if we can get the policy infrastructure right to actually treat the cost of our harm seriously, we're going to see, you know, tremendous adoption. And what's going to happen, obviously, is that with all of these industries, you get initial adoption through, you know, just good behavior from a select few who are early adopters, plus policy incentives. Right? But then once you get some of those things going and this market gets to scale, 
you begin to get what you know market economies find as efficiencies of scale. Mm -hmm. And so I don't, uh, I mean, I'm sure this is probably consistent with your views, think that we've reached that yet in Illinois. No, right? for sure. So, um, so the question is going to be, we had that policy change. We, we've seen some uptick, I believe, you would know better, but not necessarily the dramatic uh, change that we need. And so I think the question will be, what more can we do to really incentivize that uh, so that we get to you know, the Malcolm Gladwell tipping point where it becomes better for yeah. everyone, even if they have only a slight interest in this, to do solar versus the other forms yes, of energy? I completely agree. And I do agree with you, the state of Illinois in particular passed a law called the Fiji Law about a year and a half ago. That law seems to be well designed and being well executed. It hasn't kicked in yet. It's, it started in January of this year. But really, right. there's, the, there's still the energy hasn't happened. Well, they haven't uh, even like hired the people to do the different parts of it. They're still yeah. working. You know, there's it's slow. Like they're still working on, it. but it's coming, and I really feel that the federal tax is still the largest. Despite that, the largest incentive right now is the 30% federal tax credit on the cost of an overall solar system, which uh, phases starts phasing out in 2020. So now we got about a year and a half where right, uh, get the double. Yeah, I think it phases out pretty. Sl it's slow. It's slow. It, it phases out like eight percent, but that's a little bit, you know. But the question is, would that would we have the market have been penetrated enough here locally, you know, forgetting about the other forty nine states before that starts that incentive starts going away? And I would, I would say probably not. But you know, we've got some time to see what's going to happen. So yeah. Uh, well, very uh, actually. Great conversation for myself. I hope our <laughs> listeners enjoyed as well. But I also walked away feeling up upbeat because I have two daughters, and uh, you know, we it sometimes can be as an entrepreneur running a business, you make what you think are the right choices, and you know, but you've got this scared feeling of what if I screw it up for everybody? You know, we rolled out this four hundred one k, we're matching. We know that's the right thing, but is it going to hurt our bottom line and make us less competitive? So your contention that it will help us attract good employees makes me. I'll sleep a little better tonight, so I appreciate that. Well, good. Well, it's been a pleasure to be with you, yeah. and I've had a lot of fun talking with you. All right. Thanks, Seth. Talk to you soon.